All right, so let me invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. We're continuing our Advent series covering the promise of the gospel, the prophecy of the gospel is today. Uh, next week, Kyle will preach on the purpose of the gospel, and then we'll, we'll wrap up with the proclamation of the gospel. The, we're picking up in the middle of Isaiah's confrontation with King Ahaz down in the southern kingdom of Judah. This is happening around 734 B.C., and Isaiah has just seen in chapter 6, you know, the vision of the holy, 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 you know, God. And God has commissioned him to go and to, to preach and to prophesy, right? So he goes to Ahaz and he just finished telling Ahaz, look, if you're not going to stand by faith, you will not stand at all. And so on that note, it's fitting for us to stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to pick up in verse 10 of chapter 7, read through verse 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Father, would you bless the reading and the hearing and the receiving of your word to us this morning. Please grow our faith in Jesus, our Emmanuel. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. All right, we're going to, is that for me, Bill? Okay. Sure. All right, we'll try this again. Is that better? Sure, why not? I can't hear. You, you, you can hear. All right, let's talk about a sign of the Lord that, that God offers, right? I mean, everybody says, look, if God would just give me a sign, you know, some miracle, some evidence. Everybody says, hey, I just need evidence to, to believe that the gospel's real, that, that God is real, and, and then I'll believe, then I'll follow Jesus. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation like that with somebody who says, you know, yeah, that's all I need. I just need a sign. Uh, it's not uncommon to, to hear that, actually. And so here, when you've got this confrontation between Isaiah, the prophet, and the king of the southern kingdom in Judah, God offers Ahaz a sign. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Now, the whole setting here, I want to just give you a little visual orientation. The, the southern kingdom of Judah 
is no longer united to the northern kingdom of Israel. And this is, there's a little bit of a civil war going on. Uh, and furthermore, the kingdom of Assyria is threatening the northern kingdom of Israel and the additional kingdom of Syria. And so Syria and Israel are, have, are forming a coalition. And they're trying to enlist, to conscript Judah to join their coalition so that together these three nations can resist the empire of Assyria. So everybody's scared of the superpower Assyria. And Ahaz is thinking to himself, I don't want to join Israel and Syria. Instead, I know what I'll do. I will kind of do an end run around them and get the protection of Assyria. I'll become a vassal nation to the superpower against Israel and against Syria. And so there's all kinds of political maneuvering here going on, all kinds of effort on behalf of this king who's in the line of David, who's supposed to stand by faith. Instead, he is being incredibly tempted to trust in his own wisdom and his own power, actually in Assyria's power. But he's thinking, I know what I'll do. I've got this figured out. I can, I can save myself. Instead, God is saying, no, deliverance comes from trusting in me. If you've got your Bibles open, look one more chapter there, beginning in, uh, in chapter 8, verse 9. God, through Isaiah, is making sure that, that Ahaz and the rest of Judah knows where their strength lies uh, God says, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Spread a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Right? There's that language, Emmanuel. If God is with us, then nothing can stand against us, no matter how much armor they, they strap on and no matter how, many, how much power they seem to have. So God is offering Ahaz proof, confirmation of God's presence and God's power. Ask for a sign, and it can be as deep as the grave and as high as heaven. In, in other words, God offers to move heaven and earth to reassure Ahaz. To help him stand firm. How's that for an offer? Can you imagine God offering a sign like that to you? I mean, what kind, of, what kind of offer is that? That's remarkable. But instead, Ahaz, look at verse 12. He says something kind of surprising. He says, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. So Ahaz is sort of you know, it's not the reaction you expect. Of course, you'd expect him to go, well, absolutely, I would love a sign. Please give me a sign. And instead, he sort of just keeps Isaiah and therefore God at arm's length and pretends to be very pious about it. And he actually quotes Deuteronomy 6. Maybe this sounds familiar to you if you remember Jesus' temptation in the desert uh, where, you know, 
Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test when Satan tempts him to jump off from the top of the temple. Uh, And in Deuteronomy 6, it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. So is Ahaz being faithful or is he pretending? Well, he's actually pretending. He's basically trying to get super spiritual Isaiah out of his face and off of his back. You know, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. You know, I'm going to do what I think is right. You know, thank you for your interest. Thank you for your piety. Thank you for, you know, being God's advocate. But what, I know what to do. I've got this. We've got this covered. I'm going to make this alliance with Assyria. So, you know, God, God offers the sign. Ahaz doesn't take him up on the sign. Even though we, you, you can have countless conversations with people who say, well, why doesn't God prove himself? Why doesn't he give us evidence? Why doesn't he give us a sign? Actually, what ends up happening over and over again is people continue to turn their back on the sign that God does offer. This happens all the time. It's very common. God offers to move heaven and earth to reassure us that he's with us and that his power and wisdom are extended to us. He offers this sign to us, but again and again and again, people turn him down flat. They hold him at arm's length. They say, you know what? I've got this. I can take care of myself. I know what to do. I've got enough wisdom and I've got enough power to make life work. So how? Like if, if, we're, if we're saying that God offers everybody this sign and they keep turning him down, this isn't unique to Ahaz. This happens countless times around us, our neighbors and the nations and you know, even ourselves from time to time. Uh, how, how is it that God offers us this sign? What do you mean when I say that you know, people are, are turning him down? Well, you know, hint, you're in church. <laughs> so the answer must have something to do with Jesus. Uh, so how does this work? Well, God did move heaven and earth, right? I mean, Jesus moved here from heaven. He came from heaven to earth. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor. He traded the, the sapphire-paved courts for stable floor. And, uh, and he, he moved heaven to get here. And he walked this earth. And he died on this earth. He was put into the earth. And what did God do? God moved earth. Literally, there was an earthquake at the, at the crucifixion and at the resurrection. The stone rolls away, and Jesus comes out of the earth as the sign of God's wisdom and power on display for an eternity. And yet, how many times, and this was true for me, Before I was a Christian, when I was sort of pretending like I was curious about the claims of the gospel, I mean, I was, I was interested, I was sort of playing this this, um, cat and mouse game. I I was like, well, I'm sort of curious about Jesus and what God says in the Bible, but really uh, my questions were just sort of a smokescreen because what I was wrestling with and what I was, you know, struggling with was the fact that if I say yes to Jesus, then I need to give up my own wisdom and I need to give up my own power to do life well. And so my, my defenses, my questions were just sort of this smoke screen. And this happens all the time. Where people say, I want a sign. If God would just give me a sign, then I'll believe. 
And God does give us a sign. He gives us Jesus. But how many times do people just sort of say, well, I don't want that sign. Come on. Jesus is, that, that's, that sign is 2,000 years old. That can't possibly be relevant. That can't possibly be meaningful to me anymore. And they don't even investigate. They don't even look. They, they just sort of turn their back on Jesus and say, well, that's been, been tried and left wanting. No, you didn't try him. Anybody that tries Jesus, anybody that truly comes to him will experience living water. They will feed on the bread of life. They will not come away wanting. It's not the same as saying that following Jesus is easy. It's incredibly difficult. But it is completely satisfying. So over and over and over again, people say they want a sign and then they reject the sign that God gives them. It's not that they lack evidence. They lack compliance. They don't want to bow. They don't want to surrender. They don't want to change. We think think we've got life figured out. We think we've made it work. We've got enough wisdom. We've got enough power. But instead, God says, no, you don't. And the whole point of Jesus coming is so that we would turn from the way that we were doing life that created a lot of brokenness and bitterness and instead follow Jesus in love and in humility and in repentance. So people turn their back on Jesus and they rely on their own wisdom saying, I don't need God's words. They rely on their own power. I don't need his salvation. I can deliver myself. Thank you very much. And we're all still playing the role of King Ahaz. So instead, look back at verse 13. This is Isaiah's response to this, this king who says, well, I, thanks for the sign, but no thanks. And Isaiah says, well, hear then, O house of David, meaning Ahaz and all that he represents, his lineage. It is too little for you to weary, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? How's that for a challenge? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So uh, now this is bigger than just Ahaz. Things are, are, this is about his, his lineage. This is about the house of David uh, that Ahaz represents. This is really a, a symbolic of all of God's people. The sign is for everybody. It's not just for Ahaz. And so God's determined to give Ahaz the sign anyway, and it's partially fulfilled in Ahaz's day. It's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus' And then there's this coming consummation uh, of, of the sign that we'll explain further. Uh, so what's going on here in the partial fulfillment? Uh, well, it's kind of interesting because you see this reference to the virgin birth. Right? The virgin will conceive uh, and bear a son. Well, progressive um, modern scholars, uh, you need to read you know, liberal scholars, people who think they're too smart to believe in miracles, uh, they like to say... That, well, the, the Hebrew word here for virgin really just means young woman. So there's nothing supernatural going on here. This is just you know, a, a young woman who's now uh, old enough to have children. She hasn't had a child yet, but she's about to uh, know a man and, and conceive. And then they're going to, um, the sign will be similar to the fact that Isaiah's children, he was to name them different names that were part of the prophecy, part of the message to Israel about you know, God coming to them. Isaiah named his children these different names. 
And what the liberal scholars say is, well, generally what happened is people who were faithful, who were standing by faith, uh, that they would all start, these, these women, these young women would have their firstborn sons and then name them Emmanuel. And so during this period, there is this peak, this rise in little boys running around Jerusalem whose names were Emmanuel. Sort of like, you know, how in 2016, uh, there are all these little baby boys in Cleveland named LeBron. All right, so that's, what's, that's what the liberal scholars are saying is, is how this is being fulfilled. Not the case. So we don't know all the details around Isaiah's day about uh, a, a little boy named Emmanuel, and you can, you can look at different places. But, but I want to take you to, to Matthew chapter 1. Kyle's going to preach on this more, in more detail next week. But in Matthew chapter 1, there is no doubt that the, the apostle understood Isaiah to be speaking of literally a virgin, all right? This isn't some kind of um, trickery with the vocabulary or whatever. In Matthew chapter 1, we're told about how the birth of Jesus Christ took place, right? When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So it's obviously a supernatural birth. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Meaning he's thinking, hmm, something illicit has happened and is, but doesn't want to shame her. He's thinking, I, I'm not responsible for this pregnancy. Uh, and then he comes around after the angel Gabriel appears to him. And he understands this is supernatural. Matthew continues saying, um, hey, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then listen to Matthew quoting Isaiah chapter 7. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin, Greek word for virgin, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. So Matthew translates uh, the significance of Emmanuel as a name. It means God with us. So a couple of things that, that help us understand that this really is supernatural. This really is a virgin birth. Uh, 200 years before Jesus was born, they took the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, and they translated it into Greek. And when those translators for the Septuagint, the Old Testament translated into Greek, when they got to Isaiah chapter 7, they took that word in Hebrew in Isaiah 7 for, you know, the virgin will conceive, and they translated it into a Greek word for virgin. They understood what Isaiah was prophesying. It's the same Greek word that is at the root of the name for the, you know, the enormous temple in Greece called the Parthenon. It's the temple to Athena, the warrior virgin goddess. Parthenon, at its root, is the Greek word for virgin. And that's the word that's used there in Matthew to, uh, I'm sorry, in the Greek translation of Isaiah. For, it's the you know, root is Parthenos. So everybody knew 200 years before Jesus was born that Isaiah was speaking of a virgin. Isaiah you know, is making sure that we all understand this is what Isaiah was prophesying about. 
And so the fact that everybody was looking forward to this virgin birth sort of means that what the liberal scholars are trying to, to tell us is a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Uh, sometimes you'll read in, um, in the New Revised Standard Version, this even comes out in some Bible translations, um, it says that the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and will bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You know, the evidence is that Isaiah's prophecy was not co-opted by, you know, later Christians to try to sensationalize the birth of an ordinary boy. The evidence from the Septuagint's translation to the word that they use in the Greek and all this is that everybody was expecting a virgin birth. And and they didn't need to co-opt this. They didn't need to embellish the birth narrative of Jesus. They didn't have to because there really was a virgin birth. So again and again, um, you know, people are trying to, God offers us this sign and we say, no thanks, I think we've got this figured out. We're wise enough and we're strong enough. And we start to, to build these alliances. And we look, uh, we look for, um, you know, ways to ally ourselves with other powers so that we can make life work. Because we're all looking for some kind of, of salvation, some kind of deliverance. We are, our friends are, our neighbors are. We want to be delivered from sadness. We want to be delivered from, from anxiousness. We want to be delivered from, from insecurity. We want to be delivered from all of the things that make life difficult. And so what we'll do is we'll make these coalitions, right? I'll align myself with the popular people because I don't want to feel small and insignificant. Or... I'll, I'll ally myself with diet and exercise because, you know, I don't want to feel ugly and weak. I'll ally myself with food and alcohol because I don't want to feel empty and I just want to sort of numb the pain. And I'll ally myself with work and success because I don't want to feel like a failure. We're, we're just living the life of King Ahaz in, in Rewind over and over and over again. Instead, God offers us the sign. Emmanuel, God is with you. He is our deliverer. He is our salvation. There's lots of wonderful things we can enjoy in this world. Lots of wonderful things that we get to to partake in, you know, especially during Christmas. But none of those ultimately will, will satisfy our soul. None of those ultimately will take the fear and the pain and the sin away. None of those will take our guilt away. But God will. God will be with us. This sign is this picture of Jesus coming, right? He's coming to bless us. He's coming to forgive us. The sign is coming whether or not we receive it or whether we reject it. It's coming. Ultimately, the sign is fulfilled in Christ's return. Not his first coming, but his second coming. of God, God coming uh, to be with us. Like it's, it's, this prophecy from Isaiah is the, um, you know how when you, when you hear an echo, uh, maybe you're in a big, you know, warehouse or something, or, or maybe you're in a canyon, right? And you, you, you can 
shout something and you hear it repeated again and again until it fades off into the distance. Isaiah's prophecy is the opposite kind of echo. It starts off sort of a little bit quiet, a little bit hard to understand in Ahaz's day, and then in Jesus' day it gets bigger and more clearly understood. Oh, it's Jesus. He is Emmanuel. And then ultimately it's going to be heard throughout the universe when Jesus returns, this expanding, augmented echo of Christ's coming to be with us. It was truly fulfilled in Christ's coming uh, at Christmas, but it's ultimately going to be fulfilled when he comes to bless us for an eternity. Now, Revelation 21 makes this clear. The Apostle John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will be our Emmanuel for an eternity. God with us. That's our ultimate eternal hope. Is being with God. God being with us. This is what we want on the vertical. It's what we want on the horizontal. We want to be with those that we love. For Thanksgiving this year, it was like, you know, Rachel came home and Sarah came home. And so uh, we had our, our daughters with us, Lydia, Rachel, and Sarah. Uh, but we were missing Michael. Our daughters were missing their brother. Kathy and I were missing Michael. He's been working in Orlando this semester. But Kathy and I had a card to play. We had a little, little something up our sleeve. And Kathy found this great, you know, plane ticket to fly Michael home. Shh, flew him into Charlottesville. The morning of Thanksgiving, I concocted this terrible, awful lie about needing to go to the hospital because somebody's kid, you know, was at the hospital. It's like in hindsight, I could have made that a little less uh, concerning. But anyway, I drove to Charlottesville Airport, picked them up Thanksgiving morning, um, and brought them home, and Michael surprised his sisters, and it was fun. It was awesome. And and, And what was so great about that was that Michael was with us. And that's what brought you know, tears to his sister's eyes was that Michael was with them. There were no tears for my smoked turkey, as wonderful as I thought it was. It did not move people in their soul. But what moved my family was being with the one that we love. And that's what's going to be hard about Christmas is if you're without those that you love. Isn't this our hope? Isn't this what we long for, to be with the one that we love? And this is a challenge to us. Do we love God? Do we want to be with promise of God with us for an eternity in heaven. It's a promise and it's a challenge because at the end of the day, uh, the concern is not how can I get to heaven when I die. The concern is how can I be with the one that I love? Do you love God? Do you want to be with him? 
not everybody will be with him. The promise in the picture in Revelation, as much as it is enticing to us to know that we can go and be in this renewed paradise, new heaven and new earth with God, God will be with us. Revelation makes it clear that not everybody will be there. Who will be excluded? Those who are not reconciled to God, who are not reunited with Him in relationship to Him. Those who have not turned to Him and said, yes, I want your Son. I want your Son. I need your Son to forgive my sins, to make me new. And I'm sorry for the ways that I've lived life on my own, trusting in my own wisdom, trusting in my own alliances, relying on these things to make life work instead of relying on you. And God says, if you don't want me on earth, you don't get me in heaven. And so the way to be sure that for, for any of us to know that we're going to be with him for eternity is to live with him now. Love him now. Do life with him now. Work with him when you're at work. Study with him if you're in school. Play with him when you're enjoying yourself. Eat with him. Give thanks at your table. You know, do holidays with him. Do sadness with him. Do struggle with him. Do disappointment with him. Do life with God. And if you're living with him now, 